You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Uh, it was really great hearing uh, everybody's questions or, or not questions, and, and I was reminded as we went around the table um, that uh, one of, I think, my favorite liturgical moments in Judaism, um, liturgical meaning um, it's part of the prayer service and part of the ritual life of Judaism, is during the Passover holiday, um, we have a, uh, um, uh, for the first uh, night in some communities, in some communities, the first two nights of Passover, you have what's called a Seder, um, uh, which, is a, which is a sort of a, a play-acting feast uh, where you reenact and retell the story of the Exodus um, in a number of different ways. And uh, one of the great and most famous moments in the Seder, um, the prayer book for the Seder is called the Haggadah. So one of the most famous moments in the Haggadah is it says that there are four different kinds of children um, that uh, might ask different kinds of questions about Passover at the Passover Seder. Um, uh, So uh, there's the wise child um, and there's the wicked child uh, and the simple child. Um, They all ask different kinds of questions. And then the fourth child is the child who doesn't know how to ask, right? Um, And it's really important that there are all four of those children, um, and I'm not so crazy about calling the wicked child uh, wicked, because I think he asks a really pointed uh, and important question. It's all also about the intention of the question and the direction of the question. Um, But but the fourth one in particular, the child who doesn't know uh, enough yet to ask, or hasn't been able to process or formulate the the question, right? It's all a question um, uh, for that child. That's an important uh, part of the uh, of the puzzle too, and I um, love that we're going to talk next week's session. As I alluded to a couple times, is uh, um, uh, Judaism is a heart of many rooms, right? and there are all sorts of different kinds of Jews um, and uh, non-Jews who are in some way or another related to the Jewish community with all sorts of different relationships um, and uh, and thoughts and. Um, uh, outlooks and orientations to uh, to the to Judaism and the Jewish people, um, and so that's why I think it's really beautiful that in that moment it sort of tries to encapsulate um, all of the possibilities uh, for the different approaches and outlooks, and says we're all sitting at the seder table together, we're all uh, gathered together, and it's important that we're all together. So I thank you all for uh, for those great questions, and hopefully over the course of our time together, uh, at least some of them will be answered, but then others will be heaped on. Um, and uh, one of the things I love most about Judaism is that uh, the the questions are always more interesting than the answers. Um, and uh, it's really the questions that uh, that are most urgent, which is why the Seder really focuses a lot more on the questions than it does on the answers themselves. So so keep the questions coming and keep uh, building the questions upon questions, because uh, I think that's what it's all about. So um, I don't know how many of you uh, got a chance to take a look uh, at uh, not only the uh, uh, required readings for this week's class, but also some of the recommended readings, both the ones in your uh, course packet and the ones that we 
uh, um, handed out. And, and as I mentioned at the very beginning, um, there was a recommended reading for this week um, uh, so called something like the Prophets and Social Justice um, that uh, we neglected to hand out last week. Um, and I have some uh, extra copies of that upstairs in the photocopier uh, if anybody wants it after class. But there was uh, one reading that, uh, that I really just want to draw our attention to, and it's a little bit neither here nor there. I mean, it's tangentially related to what we're talking about today. But it, it struck me that, um, you know, I spent um, a good portion of the lecture last week um, talking about the first two books of the Bible, um, and then the last five minutes or so talking about the last three books of the Bible. And I got emails from a couple of people saying, maybe you could devote a little bit of next week's class talking about those last three books of the Bible. I'm not going to do that, um, but I just want to point out to you, and if you've already seen this and read it, I apologize, but um, if you look in your course packet um, on... Uh, um, if you, it's in, uh, it's in uh, class number two, uh, page two. So that's like actually page like ten in the in the packet. There's a picture of a guy with a beard and a tie and glasses on it. Um, would you recommend this book to your friends? Is uh, is what it's titled. Um, so the guy who wrote this is a teacher of mine, a, a rabbi in Los Angeles, probably one of the best pulpit rabbis, in my opinion, in the country today, um, a, a rabbi named Ed Feinstein. Um, and I want to bring this to, to your attention, first of all, because a, a lot of this class is like um, just to kind of whet your appetite, okay? And there's, there's just, you can like sort of skim the surface of all there is in Judaism and not really capture anything, but hopefully I can like spark from time to time in you a, a curiosity to, to engage more and to engage deeper. So Ed Feinstein is um, a, a, a rabbi that you should have on your radar screen. He's written a number of books that are, I think, all of them really excellent, one of which um, you actually were given tonight, a piece of it at least, we were given tonight um, as the recommended reading for next week um, from a book that he wrote called uh, Tough Questions Jews Ask. Um, and that's the one that's uh, like titled about like Orthodox Conservative, Can't I Just Be Jewish? So he wrote that book. That's a great book, Tough Questions Jews Ask. Um, he also wrote another great book recently um, called uh, Capturing the Moon, um, which is a collection of Jewish stories, just really uh, phenomenal. And, uh, and that's what he does really well. I mean, he's just an amazing storyteller. So I, I want to just share this piece with you. Um, one to recommend Rabbi Feinstein to you if you you know uh, come across him in you know on Amazon or a bookstore or something like that. Uh, but in addition to just share with you uh, how I think um, he also basically only talks about the book of Genesis, <laughs> um, and he doesn't get to get to Exodus, right? I actually I at least covered some of Exodus, but uh, he's so um, and 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 uh, the point is that um, you know really the essence of the whole. Um, Jewish outlook and Jewish mission, I think, is uh, very much encapsulated in Genesis and Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all deal with the fallout and the aftermath of those stories, right? So I, I think I tried to mention that last week, that, you know, the, the, um, the, um, the zenith of, uh, of the book of Exodus, if you will, is the experience at Mount Sinai. And after Mount Sinai, um, so the rest of the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is all kind of grappling with that experience of Sinai, which in itself is related to the stories of creation and, uh, and God's call for Abraham and all of that. Right? And so the grappling with the experience of Sinai is 
crystallizing the experience of uh, God's revelation into a, ser- a system of laws and rituals and practices that can um, uh, keep those Im- divine imperatives alive and refreshed in uh, the life of a community um, and, uh, and in the live- lives of subsequent generations. Um, and also the instructions for building the uh, tabernacle, the Mishkan, which is the portable sanctuary that the uh, Israelites carried with them in the wilderness on their way from Egypt to the promised land, um, a, a sort of physical symbol, a physical reminder of uh, God's continued presence uh, in their midst. And so we've um, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of those books really deal with uh, those kind of two aspects of Judaism, crystallizing the experience of Sinai into law and, um, and uh, um, what it means to have sacred space and what we do with sacred space and why sacred space matters, why sacred space is important, in addition to stories about the Israelites not living up to the demands of uh, the laws and practices that were uh, an attempt to crystallize Sinai and uh, the the need for um, uh, respecting and dignifying sacred space. So that happens in in those books too. But I love the way uh, Rabbi Feinstein puts this. So I just want to share with you very briefly. Okay. What's the Bible story? The Bible is a drama in three acts. Act one. The Bible's central character is a God who dreams of a world of blessing. God creates a world and it is good. God wants a partner to share and care for this world, so God creates the human being. And God creates a remarkable place for this new human creature, a garden in Eden. The garden is the epitome of God's dreams, a place of perfection, oneness, and peace. But in this place of perfection, the human is not content. Something is missing. This human creature, God discovers, God discovers, an indication that God may may not be all-knowing, God discovers, is unique. The human being craves freedom. Unlike every other creature, the character of the human being is not fixed by nature. To be human is to be a self-creating being. To achieve their humanity, man and woman disobey the God who created them. Bewildered and disappointed, God expels them from the garden. Outside the garden, humans turn further away from God's dream, descending from disobedience to murder and violence until God gives up on the world altogether and decides to destroy it all. Just then, God's eye catches sight of one man, a man with moral potential. God finds Noah, an ish tzaddik, which means a righteous person. God decides to start again. Act 2. If God couldn't create a suitable partner, perhaps God can choose one. Choose a man committed to sharing the divine dream. But Noah disappoints God as well. And his children turn from God, filling the world with corruption. And again, God is disappointed. With all God's power, God couldn't create a partner. God couldn't choose a partner. Perhaps God can teach a man to share the divine dream. Act 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your native land and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And blessed, blessed in you will be all the families of the earth. God's curriculum. Take a man and remove him from his culture. 
strip him of his, of his identity, his power, position, patrimony. Make him into a vessel of divine blessing. Be a blessing. Bring blessing to all the families of the earth. God doesn't say, be a blessing to me. Remember I mentioned at the end of class, toward the end of class last week, that the Bible was in a lot of ways written as a response to the prevailing um, religious literature of the time, uh, most of which posited a world in which there were many gods that uh, created humans either by design or by happenstance, and then had to deal with these, um, you know, like ant-like creatures that were running amok, making lots of noise that bothered the gods and kept them up. So they created a system where the uh, people would feed them and that would be their purpose is to feed the gods and to serve the gods. But God doesn't do that. God says be a blessed. God doesn't say be a blessing to me. God doesn't demand Abram's reverence, worship or submission. God invites Abram, be my partner. Share blessing with all the families of humanity. Is this charge to Abram an expression of Jewish particularism or Jewish universalism? You guys know what that means, Jewish particularism or Jewish universalism? Jewish particularism means that there's something special about Jews and being Jewish. Jewish universalism means that um, that, uh, uh, that, um, the Jewish people um, uh, are uh, maybe unique in the same way that all other kinds of groups of people are unique in the job of Jewish people is to serve and benefit and, uh, and, and improve all of humanity. Right? That's, it's a universal vision. So is this a, an expression of Jewish particularism or Jewish universalism? The answer is yes to both because Jewish identity defies those categories. From the beginning of our collective existence, we were charged to bring blessing to the world which is telling that the Bible, a story um, by Jews for Jews, starts with the creation of the whole world and the creation of all humanity. Right? It doesn't start with the, with the beginning of the Jewish story, the creation of the four, first Jew. It posits a God of all the world and the interconnectivity and relationship of all humanity. Our identity is distinctive. We are a people, but a people described by our obligation to the families of the earth. To be a Jew is to embrace both. The project begins with Abram and Sarah. It has yet to see its fulfillment. And so if you recall from last week, I I kind of left as the Torah does the story on a cliffhanger because the Torah itself doesn't end um, with a nicely wrapped up narrative, a nicely wrapped up story of, okay, you know, here's the mission that was started by the creation of the world or the, or, or the call to Abraham. And uh, then you have the Exodus narrative. And then finally they get to the promised land and happily ever after we did it. Congratulations, right? That's not how the Torah ends. The Torah ends at the cusp, at the edge of the wilderness, the cusp of the promised land, because um, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a call to say that the work of being Jewish was not fulfilled then and is still not fulfilled, right? We are always kind of at the edge of the wilderness, almost at the promised land, right? But we just have a little bit more work to do to get ourselves there. So that's where the Torah ends, right? And so that's, I, I, so I bring, I brought Rabbi Feinstein just to kind of, you know, uh, uh, say that I'm not the only one who only focused on Genesis Nexus, okay? So that's really why. But, uh, but um, what I want to talk about this week is, is um, where the Torah continues, Okay. So, 
I want to take a step back, which is rabbis have a tendency to um, make things a lot more complicated than they need to be. And um, I am probably at least as guilty of that charge as any other rabbi out there. Um, and so I was thinking of all the ways that I could explain um, in this class, like how the Jewish Bible works and how it's structured, how it's set up. And, um, and then um, a Muslim helped me out. So uh, uh, um, now his name is escaping me. Keith Ellison, I believe is his name, the first Muslim member of Congress, was being interviewed on the radio. Um, and he was talking about... Um, uh, uh, being sworn in on the Quran. It turns out it was actually Thomas Jefferson's copy of the Quran that he was sworn in on, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, he was talking about some of the negative reaction he got from some quarters about the fact that he was sworn in on the Quran instead of the Bible. And he said he got some very encouraging um, uh, uh, notes and calls from other members of Congress uh, um, representing the diversity of our country, um, one of which uh, was Debbie Wasserman Schultz, um, who, uh, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure if she's still a congresswoman from Florida, yeah. South Florida, um, and she's the head of the Democratic National Committee, I think, as well, um, or the Democratic Congressional, whatever. So. Um, in any event, so uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz um, calls him up and uh, and and um, encourages him because of the you know she got blowback too. She was sworn in on a book called the Tanakh. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, the Tanakh. And Keith Ellison said it this way. Keith Ellison said, "The Quran is the Muslim holy scripture. The Bible is the Christian holy scripture, and the Tanakh is the Jewish holy scripture." And I think that makes it actually very clear, even though I haven't defined what Tanakh is. Um, but I think that that is a word that will clear up the confusion and the, the muddling um, of the terms Bible, etc. Let's not, let's put aside the term Bible for a second, and let's just talk about, let's just talk about Tanakh. Okay, that's this book here, Tanakh. Tanakh, um, which is if you want to call it, is the, is the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, right? When people talk about the Bible, usually they mean, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the original and the sequel, right? Um, but uh, uh, the, the Jewish scriptures obviously don't have the sequel. We only uh, um, have the, uh, the original. It's like, you know, you know, Ghostbusters 1 was better than Ghostbusters 2. I mean, you sometimes have a better sequel. Than, uh, no, I'm just kidding, because I, I, really, I really do uh, admire and love the Gospels. Um, uh, but it's not part of our sacred canon. Um, which is why I think terms like Bible become muddy and confusing because people mean different things um, by that term. So that's why I think that I prefer the word, to the term Tanakh. So Tanakh, you can see here, um, is that's how it's spelled, although sometimes instead of a K-H, it's spelled with a C-H. Um, and uh, that is um, kind of a curiosity of uh, the Hebrew language. So the Hebrew language has a really wonderful sound, which is the ch sound. Let's try that. There you go. Good. You gotta get, you gotta get the real the phlegm going. Um, so there are two letters in uh, the Hebrew alphabet that produ produce the ch sound. One is called a chet, and one is called a chaf. Okay? Um, the chet is uh, sometimes uh, written, when it's written in English, it's called transliteration, right? When the when um, another alphabet is written out in English letters, it's called transliteration. So in transliteration, sometimes the chet is written ch to be the ch sound, and sometimes it's written as an h 
or an H with a dot underneath to indicate that it's a hard H. The other letter, Chaf, um, is also sometimes written with a CH to produce the Ch sound, but um, I think more properly written with a KH. Um, so when I transliterate Hebrew, I do the Chet as an H or an H with a dot underneath to, um, uh, to give it the hard Huh, hard h huh sound, um, and the chaf with a kh. I do them that way for two reasons, and, and the Jewish Publication Society, which produced this volume of the Tanakh, does it that way, I think, for similar reasons. The first reason is, for English speakers, when you see a ch, what sound do you usually associate with it? Sh. Sh, right. So um, the word is not tanach. Right? Um, and so it can be very confusing. I find it confusing um, when, when I see a CH, except for my name is Michael, so I'm used to a K sound for a CH, but even that isn't really quite right. So, um, so the, um, ha- using a CH is a little bit more complicated. Um, and the other is, if I'm writing in transliteration, I try to distinguish between the letters that I'm actually transliterating, so I'm not just like blurring the sounds together. Um, and so if I wrote both the chaf sound and the chet sound with a ch, it would assume, one would assume that they're the same letter. Um, so it distinguishes it by using a kh for the chaf and an h for the chet. Okay, that's a little bit of an aside. So, um, but all of that fits into uh, the, this point, which is that the word Tanakh is actually a, a Hebrew acronym. Okay, so um, it stands for three different things. It's uh, in the Hebrew, you can see kind of in the uh, background here, you have three letters, three Hebrew letters, a Tav, a Nun, and a Chaf, with a little um, quotation marks. So Hebrew doesn't, classical Hebrew doesn't have punctuation. If you look in a Torah scroll, it has no punctuation. One, one, uh can't remember which class, but one class we're going to go into the sanctuary. We'll look at a Torah scroll. You'll see has no punctuation. Um, so there's no periods or commas and things like that in classical Hebrew. So the way we uh, uh, traditional Hebrew writes um, uh, abbreviations or acronyms is um, with an apostrophe between the penultimate and ultimate letter. So that's what you have here. Tavnun apostrophe chet. Um, so it's a three-letter acronym. The first letter of it, the Tav, the Ta, stands for Torah. Okay, and if you want, if you're in your... Um, um, yeah, there you go, page four in your packet. Um, there's a little worksheet that, uh, that, that has this there. And you can fill this in as we go along if you like. So the T, the Ta sound is for Torah. And as we talked about last week, the Torah, um, in a literal sense, is the, uh, or in a specific sense, is the first five books of the Tanakh, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, as I mentioned last week, sometimes Jews use the word Torah to refer to something a little bit more expansive, right? The, 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 uh, vast ocean of Jewish wisdom and teaching that there is. Sometimes you know, you'll hear rabbis refer to um, Torah in that kind of general sense. But in a specific sense, it means those first five books that we uh, spent last week and now just a little bit this week talking about. The N, the Na, the, the Nun, the second letter, um, stands for Nevi'im. Nevi'im.
If you're writing in English, it doesn't really matter how you spell it, whatever, however that sounds to you. I usually spell it N-E-V-I apostrophe I-M, Nevi'im. So I'm getting there. <laughs> um, so Nevi'im means prophets. Prophets. Um, okay, and then the third letter, the Cha, um, or really actually it's more, uh, if it weren't in the acronym, it would be a Ka, a Kaf, um, is for Ketuvim. So if I'm writing in English, usually I write it, it's K-E-T-U-V-I-M. Here it spells it K-U-T-H, K-E-T-H-U-V-I-M. That's a whole other Hebrew oddity that we're not going to get to now. Okay, Ketuvim means um, writings. <coughs> um, and, uh, you know, so the first uh, two categories, Torah and Nevim, are uh, perhaps a little bit more descriptive. I mean, they're all, you know, all of it is writings. It's all text. So what does that mean, writings? So writings, it probably, uh, for some of you, in, might indicate that it's... Um, um, a, a compilation, a collection of a, a, a whole bunch of different kinds of uh, literature. Okay, so um, uh, by writings it means um, things like the Book of Psalms, um, so book of, books of poetry, uh, book, of, book of Psalms, uh, the Book of Song of Songs, sometimes it's called Song of Solomon, um, uh, is, uh, you know, so there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, so like the Book of Proverbs, um, to a certain, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, um, and then uh, some additional uh, historical writings, um, so like the book of Esther, uh, the book of uh, Daniel, the book of um, uh, Chronicles, um, are all in that third category, the, the um, collection of writings. Um, sometimes the fancy, you don't know a fancy term for it? I'm going to give you a fancy. All right, so you'll impress people at cocktail parties with this, okay? Um, you'll also be the most boring person at cocktail parties, but then you'll know how I feel. So, uh, uh, so the, the fancy term is the, the hagiographa. The hagiographa. Um, don't ask me what that means in Greek, but uh, I think it means the, like, you know, additional writings. Okay. So the Tanakh... Um, is arranged more or less even within that structure, those three kinds of categories. Um, you can categorize the literature in, in a number of different ways, um, but from a certain perspective, um, this is probably the easiest. Okay, so um, Torah tells more or less a chronologically linear story, right, from creation to the edge of the wilderness, right, like what we talked about last week. The prophets, uh, the first several books of the prophets, pick up that story. Um, and so the Torah ends with the children of Israel at the edge of the promised land, about to enter the land of Israel. Uh, Moses uh, dies at the end of the, of the Torah. Spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, and, uh, um, and then um, immediately after the Torah is over, the next book in the Tanakh is the book of Joshua. Um, Joshua was, according to the Torah, de designated to be Moses' successor, who would uh, lead the Israelites into uh, the land of Israel on a military campaign to conquer the land. 
Okay, so Joshua follows after uh, after Deuteronomy, um, and then following Joshua is the book of Judges. We'll talk a little bit more a little bit later tonight about um, um, some of the peculiarities between the narratives in Joshua and Judges, but let's just uh, leave for now that Judges presents a picture um, after the uh, children of Israel conquer the land of Israel and have been living in it and, uh, and settling in it. Um, uh, following the book of Judges is the book of Samuel, which is usually divided into two parts called One Samuel and Two Samuel. You know, sometimes, sometimes sequels don't have, like, really exciting titles. So, um, uh, so uh, 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 the book of Samuel um, uh, talks about the uh, origins of um, the Israelite uh, kingdom and the Israelite monarchy, um, which we'll talk a little bit about in the second uh, half of class tonight. Um, and uh, 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 the book of Samuel is called Samuel because it uh, um, is named after um, it, the main character in the first book of Samuel, which is a guy named Samuel, Samuel who's a prophet. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's you know why the second uh, portion of the Tanakh is called the Nevi'im, the prophets, um, is because, um, especially beginning with Samuel, but also a little bit in the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, you're dealing with figures called prophets. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, uh, but Samuel is a prophet whose main mission is to uh, um, uh, initiate the the, uh, the the first kingdom of Israel um, and uh, uh, hires a guy named Saul, um, and Saul is succeeded. We'll talk a, a little bit more detail about this in, in the history portion of our class in, in a little bit. Um, uh, Saul succeeded by a, a guy named David, um, who I'm sure many of you have heard about, King, a guy named King David. Um, and uh, by the way, there's uh, uh, my one of my teachers in Los Angeles, uh, another uh, wonderful rabbi uh, whose writings and uh, you'll encounter everywhere, um, you know, on the internet and in print um, is a guy named David Wolpe. Um, and uh, David Wolpe just most recently wrote a book, a biography of King David, and uh, Warner Brothers just uh, bought the rights to it uh, to make a movie about King David. Now, I really miss my calling because I didn't realize that you could write a biography of someone in the Bible and then like Warner Brothers would buy it from you. I really need to do that because I would think that the Bible is like open source, right? So they could have written their own script about King David and not have to pay David Wolpe for the rights. But anyway, um, so you'll see soon enough a, a movie version of King David uh, from Warner Brothers. Um, maybe it will never get made. We'll see how this Exodus movie does uh, that Ridley Scott is doing that's coming out. Um, but uh, in any event, so uh, Saul chronicles the rise of King David, the building of the Israelite kingdom, uh, and uh, the beginning of the reign of uh, King David's son Solomon. Some of you may have heard of King Solomon. Uh, and uh, the book of uh, Samuel uh, ends with uh, um, uh, Solomon's kingdom uh, flourishing, and the book continues in the book of Kings. Um, Kings is also divided usually into two parts. Who wants to guess what the two parts are called? One Kings and Two Kings, very good. Uh, and uh, the books of One Kings and Two Kings um, deal with the um, rise and the fall of, uh, of the kingdom of Israel. Um, so, um, as another spoiler alert, um, the experiment in uh, Jewish self-government in the ancient world doesn't really work out so great. Uh, and uh, uh, first, it splits into the kingdom of Israel, David and Solomon's kingdom, splits into two kingdoms um, uh, that are periodically at war 
war with each other um, uh, until uh, first in 722, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about this later, in 722 the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrian Empire um, and in 586 BCE the southern kingdom uh, falls to the Babylonian Empire um, uh, leading to um, uh, a great exile uh, known as the Babylonian exile. Um, so that that is what happens at the end of uh, the book of Second Kings is the Babylonian exile. And basically, um, with, with two interesting and notable exceptions, let me rephrase that. More than two. With a handful of interesting and notable exceptions, the story of the entire Tanakh, the Tanakh really only encompasses um, this window of history from, let's say, from the beginning of the world according to the Bible's uh, accounting of it, not necessarily the scientific accounting of it, uh, and I don't think the Bible is telling science, but let's just say, narratively speaking from the beginning of the world um, to uh, 586 BCE when uh, the southern kingdom called Judah falls to the Babylonians. All the other books of the prophets and there are um, uh, Isaiah, I always forget the number, Isaiah, um, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then 12 others. How many is that? 15. 15 books of uh, prophets uh, that are all um, uh, prophets that um, uh, that have their ministries, that, that preach during, um, really during the uh, the period that's talked about in the, the books of First and Second Kings. So really from, basically from 1000 BCE to 586 BCE. By the way, I'm going to use that term you guys know what I mean when I say BCE? Yeah, I usually use it yeah, before the common era is usually how I, how I hear it. So it, it replaces, it's the more PC way of saying uh, um, BC, right? Because BC stands for before Christ, um, and AD stands for Anno Domini. Um, I probably butchered the Latin there. But um, uh, so for non-Christian traditions, it's a little hard for us to mark our time uh, with the uh, 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 birth of, uh, of, of Jesus of Nazareth. So uh, the more PC terminology is BCE, before the Common Era, um, referring to everything before Jesus' birth, um, and uh, CE, the Common Era, referring to everything after uh, Jesus' birth. Um, so, um, so those 15 books of the prophets in the Nah section, the Nevi'im section of the Tanakh, really um, uh, fall into that basically 500-year window um, uh, between the origins of the Israelite kingdom um, and uh, the fall of, the, of, of, uh, of Judah. Um, like I said, there's some notable exceptions. So in the books of... Some of the prophets uh, um, talk about... Uh, bleed into the Babylonian exile, so after 586 BCE. Um, and, uh, and some of the books in the Ketuvim section, the third section, the writings, um, uh, deal with um, uh, what scholars would call post-exilic history. Okay, post-exilic history means um, in 586... I'll talk about this more in depth in uh, in, in a history in the history portion. Um, but in 586, the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, um, sending the um, the priesthood and the nobility um, and the aristocracy, uh, the Jewish priesthood, nobility, and aristocracy into uh, exile in Babylonia. Babylonia is modern day Iraq, um, and um, in uh, 538, give or take. Um, so about 50 years thereafter, uh, the 
Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire, um, and uh, Cyrus, who's the king of Persia at the time, or the emperor of Persia at the time, um, uh, uh, allows conquered peoples like the Jews to return back to their ancestral homeland. Okay, so there is um, a, a period in Jewish history that's known as the post-exilic period because in 538, the exile formally ends. Jews are able to return back to uh, Jerusalem and the land of Israel and start rebuilding Jewish society there. So there's some books um, uh, in the uh, in, in the Ketuvim section that deal with that period in Jewish history, most notably um, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, those of you from Christian traditions probably uh, know it better as Nehemiah, uh, but uh, Nehemiah is how you would say it in Hebrew, um, deal with the return of the exiles to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, and you also have books like Esther, which Jews read on uh, the holiday Purim, um, because it uh, tells a story that supposedly is the origins of the holiday, and you can see at the bottom of this worksheet, match the Megillah. Megillah is a term for some of the books of the writings, okay? Some of the books in the Ketuvim are called, uh, the, are called Megillahs, or Megillot, um, which literally means a scroll. It's a strange term, because from a technical standpoint, at a certain point in Jewish history, all of the books of the Tanakh were scrolls. Still, the Torah is always read as a scroll, uh, but some of the books are read in Jewish worship from scrolls still to this day. Um, uh, very notably, the book of Esther, which we read on the holiday of Purim, which happens in the spring, or late winter, early spring. Um, and so the story of Esther talks about uh, the Jews living in Persia, right? So this is, these are Jews who decided not to go back to Judah when Cyrus um, allowed them to go back. And they, they said, well, I got a pretty nice life here in, uh, in Shushan or wherever it is, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick around here, right? So you, I mean, it's like what you have today. You have you know, Jews are able to go back to the land of Israel and uh, uh, automatically, if they want to, become Israeli citizens. Uh, but there's lots of Jews like myself who say, you know, I, I really like it in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to support the project of the state of Israel, but, uh, but, but uh, I, you know, um, I know where my dry cleaner is here, right? So I, um, so, uh, um, so anyway, so, so you have, so, um, so the, the, the narrative story of the Tanakh really kind of ends, what I'm trying to get at here, is the narrative story of the Tanakh kind of ends with the book of Kings, um, it, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile in 586, um, and then the other books of the prophets, the Nevi'im, kind of zero in on various stories and moments within that history, and then in the writings, it sort of flip-flops between uh, poetry and wisdom and histories um, that encompass periods following the exile. Yes? Al. I presume the people living in 950 Probably not, because they would have been very confused about why they were counting down instead of up. Were they counting down? That's the question. No, probably not. I, put this timeline together. Yeah. Um, the, the one that you have in this book? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Rabbi Adam Greenwald, who's the uh, director of the Miller Introduction to Judaism program. I mean, the, the, the timelines are more or less um, uh, agreed upon by historians. What, what you don't really, everything with the squiggly marks before it are things that, you, that we don't really know. The, the dating of like 1020 BCE is all uh, modern dating, right? So we, 
know more or less the time that people were referring to when they would talk about, um, you know, they, they would, in the ancient world, you usually referred to uh, what year it was by um, what year it was in the reign of whatever king it was at the time, right? And so you see that all over the Bible. It's like, you know, in the, uh, in the 12th year of the reign of King Josiah, he issued this proclamation. And, um, and so archaeologists and uh, um, historians kind of do um, detective work to see, okay, well, what else was going on um, at that time? And they kind of piece together a chronology um, that, that dates the history that way. That's sort of how, how it works. So they didn't know it was 950 BCE. Um, people didn't really have a sense, my guess is, of, of those dates until um, uh, probably the formalization of the, uh, of, of the Gregorian calendar, you know, in, in, in uh, the medieval period. I actually don't really know the answer to that question. Yeah, Dimitri. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So the so the Jewish calendar um, it's an interesting thing. I mean, uh, although uh, the Jewish calendar itself was not uh, um, fixed until pretty late in Jewish history. By late in Jewish history, I mean it was like two thousand years ago. Uh, but that's late in Jewish history. Um, uh, so the Jewish calendar uh, that we now very much rely on today didn't really exist in the time of uh, the the Talmud um, or more to the point, the biblical period that we're talking about today. Um, people didn't really have a sense of what year it was other than what year it was in the reign of whatever king it was. Um, they marked their time uh, based on the lunar cycle and and, uh, and they knew when a year passed um, because you went through a calendar cycle. But, uh, but, but that was more or less it. So they didn't have a formal system of counting like we do today. Yeah. This is as good a place as any to, to pause for other questions. So other questions? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and you would think, because Judaism is uh, 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 very often fixated on its calamities, that, uh, that it would. Um, but uh, um, uh, the Jewish calendar uh, counts from the beginning of the the beginning of the world. Um, but the beginning of the world being like if you read a literal chronology of what happened in the Bible, um, the world would be five thousand seven hundred uh, and seventy five years old. Which you know, clear, you know, on 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 its face is not scientifically accurate. But uh, again, I'm going to reiterate this, and if we want to have a subsequent conversation, um, uh, I can we can talk at length about uh, how I think the, the Bible is not trying to uh, make a scientific statement about the creation of the world. But anyway, if you wanted to read it literally and count you know, the ages of people and the chronology of the Bible, you would get to 5,775 years um, for, the, for the age of the world. And so the Jewish calendar counts its years that way. Um, uh, but you're right, it is an interesting curiosity that um, it didn't stop the counting at the destruction of the ten- temple and say, okay, everything before that was one era and we have a new era um, uh, following it. Right, so we'll talk about that. I mean, um, it, it was a cataclysm. The destruction of the te- Second Temple was probably more catastrophic. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah. yeah. 
Well, so, Rabbi, yes. So you're saying that the Jews of that time did not refer to the year as 4972 or whatever year it happened to be. Um, that you, because you know yeah. you had obviously had to keep a calendar, and the lunar calendar and the solar calendar, of course, they don't, they're not coincidental. Yeah. So. <coughs> Is, is, it, is it clear from historical record, um, you know, what, how in fact time was kept? Like, for example, when the Babylonians, you know, had had the had the victory, what what, what was their system of counting? For example, um, it's it's a difficult question. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. So I, I'm I, I'm not um, enough of a historian, an ancient historian, to really know how to answer that question. What I can say is that uh, the Jewish system of, uh, of, of counting from the beginning of the world um, is at least as old as the Talmud, which was written around the year 500 CE. Um, so it's a, at least 1,500 years old, give or take. Um, probably older than that, although the, um, the important Jewish text that, uh, upon which the Talmud is based the Mishnah um, was written about the year 200 CE and doesn't refer to uh, the counting of years that way. So it, it leads me to believe that they weren't counting uh, years that way then, um, although they might have been and just didn't think it was worth writing about. Um, but they, but uh, uh, the ancients did know about uh, um, uh, the solar year, um, so they didn't just have a lunar year. Um, uh, you know, and you can tell the solar year from the from the passage of seasons and uh, and and the timing of the equinoxes uh, and the solstices, right? So um, and so they knew about those things. Um, I don't know if they. Uh, I don't. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. What I was about to say. What I was about to say is, I don't know if they ever referred to it as 365 days of a year, but actually, that's not true. The 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 midrash, um, which um, uh, is hard to date, uh, it depends on which midrash you're talking about. But there are pretty old uh, uh, rabbinic texts um, that talk about how. So uh, the rabbis believed that there were 613 commandments in the Torah. Okay, that Jewishly, by the way, is worth us kind of noting. It's an important number. We talk about you know the, uh, a good portion of the uh, Bible um, uh, from like the middle of Exodus on deals with uh, um, creating a Jewish legal system, a system of laws and practices and rituals. Um, and so, really, just from the middle of the book of Exodus through the rest of the Torah, there are 613 individual commandments. Um, and uh, um, uh, different rabbis have uh, different ways of adding them up and counting. It's, it's an interesting thing because um, it seems like they're much more interested in there being 613 commandments than them actually like really agreeing on what the 613 are. Um, <laughs> But uh, a very old Midrash talks about how the reason there's 613 commandments is that they correspond to, um, one of these is scientifically accurate, the other is not. So uh, corresponds to um, 365 days of the solar year and uh, 248 limbs in the human body or bones or like organs in the human body. Um, distinct parts of the human body, I guess, I guess I should say. Um, so um, that's, that's not really true. There aren't really 248 uh, um, uh, distinct uh, uh, limbs in the human body, although it's close. Um, 
Um, I'm not an anatom, not uh, an anatomist, so I, uh, I actually don't have the exact number for you right now. But anyway, so but uh, but uh, it goes to show you that uh, people in um, uh, in in the uh, ancient early medieval world had a sense of a 365 day uh, solar calendar, um, and they also had a sense of uh, the the shorter lunar calendar, which is um, 342 days or something like that. Um, uh, like that. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so they, so, the, now I don't even remember your question anymore. So the, uh, uh, the, um, um, uh, yeah, no, I mean the, the, um, uh, uh, so if you, you know, if, here. I'll just randomly, I'll open to the passage in um, 2 Kings um, when there is uh, the destruction of the second temple, okay? Um, um, Okay. Yehoiachin, who was the um, king of Judah at the time of the destruction, was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of Elnatan of Jerusalem. He did what was displeasing to the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the troops of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched against Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against the city while his troops were besieging it. Thereupon, King Jehoiachin of, of, of Judah, along with his mother and his courtiers, commanders, and officers, surrendered to the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. Right? So we know what year that was by p- piecing the puzzle together of what else was happening. At the, you can get it from other sources. Yeah. Right. So you needed you needed years for um, you know things like tax records and um, uh, you know they had they had you know systems of tax records and birth records and things like that uh, in the ancient world, just the same as they do today. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it probably didn't matter so much to the average person who was much more interested in when his crops were coming in. Is there a mapping of these dates on page five to the beginning of the counting? Meaning what? Meaning like is 722 BCE equals 2322? In the oh, in the Jewish calendar? No, you'll have to do that math on your own. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, 722 is uh, 2013 plus 722. Uh, and is then. Really? Yeah, because it 2000, 2014, rather. I forgot what year it is. Uh, 2014 uh, goes to zero, right? And then okay. add 722 to that. So what is that? 2080. Uh, no, 2090. No. To, to 2,736, okay? So subtract 5,775 uh, minus uh, 2,736, and then you'll get your answer of what year that was in, in the Jewish. Yeah. All right, do it.
Let us know what you come up with. Okay, other, other questions? Due to the length of this class, we have split this episode into two. Please join us next week for part two of The World of the Torah. We hope that you will also consider subscribing to The Stender, Rabbi Knopf's other Jcast Network podcast, which shares Rabbi Knopf's sermon from the pulpit. The podcast is available on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. See you next week.